China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS, and this week I'm joined by Manfred Elstrom, an assistant professor in the Department of Economics, Philosophy, and Political Science at the University of British Columbia. Today we'll be discussing his new book, Workers and Change in China, which was just published by Cambridge University Press. Manfred, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I wanted to start out by asking for a, an intellectual biography, if I may. How did you come to be interested in this set of research questions, this focus on labor in China? So in the mid-2000s to maybe the early aughts, I worked with a bunch of civil society groups that were concerned with workers' rights in China and maybe with improving Chinese local governance more generally. In particular, I helped build and manage some programs at a group called the International Labor Rights Forum that's based where you are in D.C. that supported Chinese grassroots labor, non-governmental organizations or NGOs that were conducting work legal training on the one hand and Chinese law schools that were establishing clinics through which law students gained experience representing workers and mediation, arbitration and court on the other hand. And this was, you know, a really exciting time when there seemed to be a lot of momentum behind Chinese workers. You had some really tragic incidents that some of your listeners might be familiar with, like the discovery of slavery and Shanxi brick kilns and a rash of suicides by workers at the big Foxconn electronics factory in Shenzhen. But you also had a lot of really inspiring strikes like the 2010 one that shut down Honda's whole Chinese supply chain. So I just wanted to step back and see what all this activity added up to. So in a way, the research project grew in a somewhat backward manner. In grad school, you're told that you're supposed to identify some sort of puzzling outcome and work backward from it to identify some cause of that outcome. But I had a cause, namely worker militancy, and I wanted to see what kind of outcome, if any, it was having in terms of Chinese governance. And what I found was some real change happening as a result of pressure from labor, but change of a kind of puzzling sort. Before we get into the specifics of the book, I, just as a question about timing for the research for this. So the book just came out. When did you do the field work that went into the book? So the field work happened between 2011 and 2015. So the handover from Hu Jintao and Wen Jiabao to Xi Jinping and then the early Xi Jinping era with a brief trip back in 2017. How difficult is it to do this sort of field work now? It's a lot harder. Back when I was working with advocacy groups, it was surprisingly easy not just to engage with these universities and labor NGOs that we worked with, but also with some government officials. So judges who wanted training on labor law, trade union officials who wanted to talk to their counterparts abroad. And I had imagined that as a grad student, I could just pick up some of those old ties and give people a ring and they'd be happy to talk to me. And that really wasn't the case. And part of it was this handover to Xi Jinping or this cooling of China's political climate even before he came into office. And part of it was just being a graduate student with little status and no real upside for interviewees in meeting with you. If you could just help set the scene slash unpack some terms that I think will be helpful for the rest of our discussion. And indeed, in a lot of the media coverage, looking at worker strikes, 
it's difficult to get a sense of at a granular level exactly what's happening or to understand how you extrapolate from a protest in one area of the country in one industry and how that may be similar or dissimilar to other protests in different industries. But at a very basic level, what does unrest mean? We see that word a lot, rising unrest, you know, different patterns of unrest. But is there a more scientific definition of unrest and a delineation between what's three disgruntled employees sitting around the water cooler and, and what is something that's a bit more? So everyone has their own definitions of unrest or protest. And the definition that I have in my head, at least, is something collective. So not just one person filing a legal complaint, something contentious. So something that goes outside of the most formal accepted channels. So someone speaking up in some sort of public forum or in their workplace. And in the Chinese context, that can range from people slowing down production people going on strike, that is, uh, stopping production, withholding their labor, people moving outside of the factory gates or outside of the construction sites gates and blocking a freeway. I was stuck in traffic in Shenzhen for a couple hours once a long time ago because a group of women workers were blocking the freeway. They'd linked arms across the freeway. Going to a government building and singing songs or raising banners all the way up to at the more rare end of things, uh, linking up across factories, uh, linking up across regions uh, to make some sort of bigger claim. Most stuff in China stays within a single work site. It usually takes the form a small protest outside of the factory or a short-lived strike. I don't want to get ahead of our conversation, but just as I was hearing you explain this, I was thinking, to what extent is there communication and learning across disparate communities who have their own individual reasons to be demonstrating or for this unrest to be emerging? Are there best practices or is everyone kind of figuring out on their own based on the local exigencies of what the most effective way to measure protest is? There's local sharing through networks of people from the same hometown, for example. You had this way back at the beginning of the 20th century in treaty ports like Shanghai, and you have that today, you know, people from Hunan or whatever uh, sharing information with other people from Hunan. Because China uses something that uh, some scholars have called a dormitory labor regime, where workers tend to be housed on site, especially in the southeast of the country, there can be sharing in the dormitory right there. But increasingly, and when I say increasingly, I mean for the last decade or decade plus, people have been sharing on social media. So it's true that the Chinese government carefully censors information that has some sort of a collective action component to it. There was an influential paper arguing that this is really the focus of Chinese censorship. But labor actions are usually so small scale or are seen now as so routine that they kind of fly under the radar and stay up on Weibo, stay up on WeChat for quite a while. And there might not be a lot of direct communication between workers at different work sites, but you can see other people's actions there and have a little bit of a model in your mind. Uh, sometimes when people take action, they tag in their posts then various prominent uh, labor NGO leaders, or at least they used to until recently, and maybe the local trade union office, local government office, and that sort of gets their message out a little bit further. So there is some learning across areas, and that's very different, I think, than 
two decades ago when you had uh, protests up in China's northeast over state-owned enterprise restructuring and that kind of thing, where the internet wasn't as developed and you didn't have these models to draw upon. Can you give us an overview of the state of labor and the state of labor unrest in 2021? This is another one where if you're like myself, only following this from a distance, it's difficult to get a sense of the extent of labor unrest. Of course, when there's moments of protests that make national news or international media, that gives a sense that labor state relations are becoming more contentious. But yourself as a consistent and careful watcher, can you give us a lay of the land in 2021? It's hard for even people who watch carefully to have a really good sense of the scale of things. And the most basic reason is that China doesn't keep official strike statistics. The U.S., since the Reagan era, has kept kind of poor strike statistics in that they only count strikes over a thousand people. But China doesn't keep any strike statistics, at least not any that it publishes. So you have to rely on uh, tracking these kind of notices on social media, acknowledgments in local state media, publications in the dissident diaspora, and that kind of thing. I have my own strike map I've maintained for a while, but it just covers the Hu Jintao, Wen Jiabao era, and there's a more up-to-date strike map that a group called China Labor Bulletin based in Hong Kong keeps. And if you go by those numbers, which are obviously incomplete and I think China Labor Bulletin estimates that they're catching about 10% of what's happening. Things are happening still at a really big scale, a scale that dwarfs activism in the United States or Europe or other wealthy countries. Since COVID, there's obviously a little bit of a slowdown. People were at home and not working, but you've seen a move toward really militant organizing in the sectors that have really benefited from our current COVID world. So delivery workers in particular have been organizing, striking, sharing information between each other, and in some uh, sad instances, committing uh, self-immolation and those kind of things in protest. Before COVID, you saw some really unique uh, linking up between areas. So you had some truck drivers who coordinated a national strike. You had some crane operators on the coast who coordinated a national strike. And you had Walmart workers. That's not workers manufacturing Walmart products, but working in actual Walmart stores in China, coordinating between regions. You haven't seen much of that since COVID, but things are still continuing at a pretty high level. Another question before we dig into the main thesis or argument in the book is, I think it's often framed as it's you know workers and the government, but of course there's a whole variety of institutions and bodies who are there to mediate and manage the relationship. Can you give us a sense of who are the primary actors here from the government party side who are institutionalized to manage the relationship? I'm glad you asked that because it's sometimes confusing for people who aren't familiar with China's industrial relations just to be dropped into the scene without some guide. On the government side, you have something called the Ministry of Human Resources and Social Security. And uh, those words, human resources, were added fairly recently and show maybe a little bit of a shift in the government's attitude uh, from labor to a more sort of management perspective. But they enforce uh, labor standards uh, in addition to obviously dealing with certain benefits. But you also have a single 
trade union, the All China Federation of Trade Unions. Uh, that's the only union allowed in China. It has roots in really radical union organizing in the 1920s in Shanghai and Guangzhou and places. But after the revolution, although some of the ACFTU's early leaders made bids for greater autonomy and did so again in the 1980s, it's basically been kept as an instrument for maintaining industrial peace. So the union brings the party and government's wishes down to workers, and in turn, it's supposed to forward their concerns up to the government and party, all the while maintaining production. So the union sort of occupies that space that trade unions would occupy in other countries, but it just about never organizes a strike. And at a local level, furthermore, it's often entangled with enterprise management. So maybe the head of the company's brother will be running the trade union at a factory. There have been some interesting experiments here and there in Guangdong and Zhejiang, for example, with directly electing enterprise level union heads. This is something that's long been provided for in law, but hasn't been done much in practice with engaging in negotiations that sort of approximate collective bargaining abroad in providing some legal services, that kind of thing. And what I would emphasize is that it's not a coincidence that it's places like Guangdong and Zhejiang where the union has engaged in these reforms. Those are places where there's a lot of labor unrest and where workers have pushed the official union to be a little more active. Pivoting now to the main argument of the book, which I found really striking and as all good arguments, sort of surprising and striking at the same time, you make the argument that labor unrest is really pushing Chinese governance and shaping Chinese governance, but in two different directions, unintended and intended maybe. But one is pushing the Chinese government to become more responsive, but it's also pushing the Chinese government to become more repressive, which seems at the surface to be a contradiction. So can you just take some time now and unpack how labor unrest is functionally shaping Chinese governance and then just really get into where is it pushing Chinese governments to be more responsive? I think that's surprising, again, to those of us who follow this tangentially. It seems like the trend is pure repression, and especially under the Xi administration. So where is it pushing it to become more responsive? And how is it becoming more repressive? So in the book, I sketch out this extended process of change that starts at the workshop, shop floor level, and then extends all the way up to the corridors of power. And I start by saying that different regional configurations of economic sectors and worker demographics generate different forms of conflict. So really contained conflict or more transgressive conflict or in the middle of what Kevin O'Brien calls a boundary spanning conflict. And these are defined by different tactics on the part of workers, different demands, and different levels of organization. And these, in turn, spur on uh, different local, regional models of control. So where unrest stays contained, it's in the interest of local officials to not rock the boat and risk introducing conflict where there isn't any already. So they practice what I call an orthodox style of managing workplaces. And that means uh, preempting disputes as much as possible, 
acting really cautiously when it comes to introducing new local labor laws or altering the programming of their local branches of this official union and gently nudging capital and labor alike into line with sort of quiet carrots and sticks. And my case study illustrating this dynamic in the book is Jiangsu's portion of the Yangtze River Delta, which is kind of inland from Shanghai. But where unrest is really intense, that is transgressive or boundary spanning, I argue that authorities can't realistically hope to bring the situation entirely under control, at least not in their short time in office in a particular place. But what they have to do at least is demonstrate to their superiors in the hierarchy that they're responding forcefully and creatively to the instability. And so they adopt what I call a risk-taking style of managing workplaces, which is characterized by being reactive, not proactive, not trying to head off each and every dispute, but just saving their energy for really high-profile showdowns, experimenting when it comes to their local labor laws and trade union programming, like those examples I just gave of promoting direct elections for enterprise-level union heads, but at the same time cracking down really brutally on labor activists and ordinary workers. And my case illustrating this dynamic is Guangdong's portion of the Pearl River Delta. My argument isn't necessarily that this is some sort of sophisticated, comprehensive plan on the part of local authorities, but rather that just each branch of the local state swings into action in the way that it knows best. So the public security people, confronted with rising unrest, crack down really hard. The union people, confronted with rising unrest, uh, dust off some of the reform proposals that have been kicking around and give them a try and the legislatures go a little beyond whatever the national labor laws are and uh, tweak things, add in some additional local benefits for workers, uh, protections for workers. And these local responses then add up. And at a national level, on average, more contention means both more repressive and more responsive capacity. So here I switch from case studies, interviews, and move into statistical analysis and show that more strikes, protests, and riots, on the one hand, yield more spending on the paramilitary people's armed police, that's repressive capacity, and more pro-worker and split decisions and mediation, arbitration, and court, that's responsive capacity in the sense of being able to overcome powerful local interests, on the other hand. In other words, labor activism is broadly pushing the government in two directions at once. Can I ask, based on your interviews with labor, how do they make assessments about prospect of success? In other words, there must be, for the amount of labor unrest that you and some other entities are describing exists within the country, if the prospect of success was zero, I would imagine that would start to filter through the decision-making incentives for labor. If the prospect was 100%, then, of course, you would see a fundamentally changed China. How are labor activists and participants in protests, your sense of how are they assessing their prospects? Do they have heuristics for where and how they can push and probe based on an assessment of where the local authorities is? And how do they balance that with knowing that clearly there is an iron fist that is lurking somewhere off in the middle of distance and can come striking anytime soon? Yeah, that's a great question. I think they're pretty thoughtful about weighing the 
costs and benefits of what they're doing. And they weigh it based on what information they have, again, about other strikes in their area. And they also think carefully, I think, about who is going to benefit and who's going to bear the cost. And often, if a few ringleaders can be identified, they're the ones that will bear the cost and the group as a whole will benefit. And sometimes those ringleaders, fully aware of this dynamic, are people who were going to quit their job anyway, who are ready to move on and who want to do something for their co-workers uh, before leaving. Sometimes the workers are very careful to not put anyone forward to negotiate on their behalf because no one wants to take the fall for the whole action. And the assumption of the company, the assumption of local authorities, is that whoever steps forward to negotiate was the one who organized it. So this has this paradoxical negative effect from the perspective of authorities and companies that it's really hard to bring these disputes to a close. If no one wants to step forward and negotiate, then it's hard to uh, figure out what all the demands are, what it would take to get workers back on the line. But that's just to say they weigh these costs and benefits. Sometimes some people uh, will take a fall for everyone. Sometimes uh, no one will, and things drag on. In the big picture, I think the fact that strikes uh, continue and continue at such a high level suggests that workers on the whole are weighing the benefits higher than the costs. I know the core focus of this discussion in the book is thinking about the relationship between labor and the state. But of course, there's a third actor here, and that is companies and firms. And so I know it's very hard to generalize because we're talking about SOEs, we're talking about private companies, we're talking about foreign companies, we're talking about Chinese companies. But I wonder if you could just give us a broad sense of the role that companies play and maybe thinking through a few of these different types of you mentioned Walmart, so we have a foreign company operating in China versus, let's imagine, Chinese company of delivery workers versus an SOE. How are they interacting with these two actors of the state and labor? Do they typically side with the government for their own bottom line interests, but also their own political sustainability interests? Or do you see companies play some interesting and novel roles as intermediaries between the state and labor? I think it does depend a lot on the companies background. In one company, SOE Towns, the firm and the government, I think, are likely to adopt sort of an exaggerated version of this general approach I'm describing. So they're likely to come down extra hard on workers, but they're maybe likely to make extra big concessions. And that's because the firm and the government are kind of synonymous with each other. So any kind of pressure on the firm is seen immediately as a sort of political problem. When it comes to foreign invested enterprises, they really kind of run the gamut. Some of them in turn face pressure back home. So I start my book with a description of a pair of strikes at shoe factories run by a Taiwanese company subcontracting for big firms like Nike and Timberland and that kind of thing. And when the first of those strikes happened back in 2004, there was a lot of pressure on Nike and Timberland to intervene somehow and get local authorities to go easy on the workers. 
I would guess that wasn't the first thing on the mind of the Taiwanese company that was doing the immediate subcontracting. So sometimes there can be complicated relationships on that side. And from Nike or Reebok or Timberland's perspective, they can always move on to another supplier or whatever. And it's the local, often a Taiwanese or Hong Kong firm uh, that has the tight margins and that is right there uh, tussling with the workers and uh, negotiating relationships with the local government. So I think it just depends a lot on the background of the firm involved. We're getting close on time, and I wanted to, there's a few kind of key questions I wanted to ask you, but maybe as a, a final one in this, how does the government respond? Are we seeing that there is kind of a unified toolkit of responses that Beijing is pushing out to subnational governments and saying, here's the playbook? Or are you seeing a fractured authoritarian model of, you know, lots of different learnings and responses and trials and error and sort of regional industry differences? I would say more the latter. I think it is quite fractured, but each region's response is also not isolated from that of other regions. So, for example, when I met with officials in Jiangsu, where labor unrest is more moderate. I noticed that they were paying very close attention to what was happening in Guangdong, where unrest is very intense. And they were doing everything they could to not become like Guangdong. So for that reason, it's not the case that every province will become like whatever the current hotspot is, like they'll all converge on a certain set of practices, because they're sort of actively preempting getting themselves in the situation of having to make certain concessions or having to crack down harder. And so they're innovating with an eye to their peers. So it's fragmented. Different places are doing different things, sometimes quite different things, but they're looking over their shoulders at what other places are doing. Final question, which is more methodological. I wanted to ask you about the dominant paradigm or paradigms for thinking about the party state. We now seem to be alternating between two different ways in which we're thinking about China. One is looking for signs of weakness in the system, pathologies in the system, fragilities, legacy or emerging fragilities, especially under Xi Jinping. I think there's a, a worry about over-centralization, the end of local level autonomy for experimentation. So that's very much in the when will the damn thing collapse bucket of questions. The other side, though, and I think very much in response to the overestimation of fragility is on this question of resilience. We're recording this on June 29th, so it's just before the fake 100th anniversary, because we all know the real one is July 23rd. But the 100th anniversary of the party, which is, I think, a good moment to reflect on, gosh, this thing has survived a lot longer than many of us expected, especially after the, the collapse of the Soviet Union. You have made some, I think, very articulate critiques of an over-reliance on both of those you know, extremes. One is an over-fixation on resilience. The other is an over-fixation on fragility in the system. Can you first unpack where you see the shortcomings of an over-reliance on those? And, and what is a better way that as analysts, whether in academia or us poor schmucks in think tanks who are trying to do this work, what's a better way that we should think about this question? So I think you described the extremes really well, and there's a little bit of a sequence to them in academia, at least, namely that in the 1990s, there was a real emphasis on sources of fragility and a assumption, at least in some quarters, that every authoritarian regime was just some sort of way station on the path to democracy. 
And a lot of countries didn't transition to democracy. A lot of new democracies reverted to authoritarianism. And so this first paradigm got replaced by a second one, the one you described of authoritarian resilience, where people started to look at the different tools and the dictator's toolkit for staying in power. And I think that second paradigm offered a really useful correction to the first one. It opened our eyes to just a lot of nuances in non-democratic governance, but I think it's gone too far, at least with regard to China, to the point where any kind of seeming bug in the system is immediately assumed to be some sort of feature that we just have to discover and explain. So people take the Communist Party's 100 years in power and work backward from that to explain why it has to be so. And what I'm proposing in this book isn't so much to not pay attention to sources of strength in Beijing or sources of weakness in Beijing, but to just look at how governance can change within the shell of continued Communist Party rule, just like we do in democracies. So not treating it as sort of a static entity, either static and, like you said, with Clay Freet and about to tumble over, or some sort of master puppeteer that's got everything worked out. I'm mixing metaphors right there. But I think just, you know, taking a more dynamic perspective and also taking a more bottom-up perspective and looking at how actors like workers are reshaping the government in sometimes complicated ways. Because it seems to me both the resilience and the fragility are in some senses teleological. One is, when is the darn thing going to collapse? And the other one is kind of looking to onward ascendancy. Are you articulating or advocating that we just start understanding how the darn thing functions and changes and evolves? Yeah, especially how it changes and evolves and why it changes and evolves uh, without necessarily an eye to the day when it might collapse. Manfred, I want to thank you. This is really a great conversation. I actually would love to have a follow-up on just these methodological issues because in my own world, the questions you ask well or not well determines what you end up spending the rest of your time working on. And in think tank world, there is not peer review. There's not as much focus on methodology, which allows for greater speed. But I think there's a lot of unassessed assumptions that drive the work. And so we don't pull out, extract, and observe and analyze a heuristic in the way that I think academia is doing. So there's a lot we can learn from that. I feel the heavy breath of fragility on one shoulder and resilience on the back of the other. And both seem to have uses in the sense that fragility is good to remind folks who paint the party as 48 feet tall, able to plan 10,000 years into the future, that these guys put their pants on one leg at a time and are dealing with time horizons of uncertainty in the same way we all are. But on the other hand, the resiliency paradigm is helpful for folks who are predicting every week that the party is about to collapse and Xi Jinping is holed up in Zhongnanhai fighting off coup attempts left and right. But what I don't have, which I think you're laying out here, is a third, more durable, helpful approach of understanding this as an evolving being that has elements of fragility and, and weakness in it, of course, at the same time. So that's just a really helpful final note and one that I, I would hope we can continue the discussion on because I think it's pretty critical as we try and understand, I was going to say the next hundred years, but the, the next, you will see. So as Joanne Lai said, it's too early to tell.
So anyway, Manfred, thank you very much. This was great. And I, for listeners, you know, having read Workers and Change in China recently, it is a book about labor, but it is also a book about how China's political system operates. It's a book about the forces that shape, constrain Beijing, that cause Beijing to adjust. It's a great book about, I think, a more granular understanding of push and pull within the system, of the way that the Communist Party spans, as Manfred says in the thesis, responsiveness and repression. It's a yes and question rather than an either or in so many cases of the party. So it's just out by Cambridge University Press. Manfred, thank you so much for your time and your analysis and for writing this really fantastic book. Thanks so much for having me too and giving me a chance to talk about the book. I really appreciate it and enjoyed the conversation and hope we can continue it sometime in person when that's possible. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 